one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Alan, a little fairy told me something special today. <laughs> A very special day for someone. Oh, God. Yes, today I am one day closer, one year closer to death on that glide path to oblivion. Congratulations. Say, every day you're one day closer to death. <laughs> that, is, that is true. I guess that is, man, time's arrow. It's it's very unidirectional. It's and crazy. honestly, today, day that you probably eat like a lot of cake and stuff, it's probably like one step larger step <laughs> yeah, to death yeah, yeah. than a lot of other days, depending That's on right. your diet, things like that. I'm, ex- I'm excited though. We're... Uh, my wife and I were we're going out tonight. The uh, the in laws are babysitting. We're going to watch the Blackberry movie. I'm pretty stoked about that. <laughs> That's a perfect Alan birthday. It really, it's supposed to be really funny. Really? <laughs> People are raving about yeah, it. Actually. It's supposed to be yeah. exceptionally good. Yeah, we're. Gonna I go. don't understand this spate of movies about like corporate heroes and Icaruses. It's very. Like there's obvious. I've read a bunch of articles about them because I find it so odd. But the articles are just like. Sure says something about capitalism and it's like, yeah, like the the critique is so close to the surface that there's like not actually anything interesting about it, right? I I just I don't get it. it well, I think it's like the ultimate kind of manifestation of this phenomenon that we're slowly culturally moving past, which is like the tech icon which is something that major tech people play into, but we're kind of out of actual tech icons. So now we have to go look around our house and pick a random object being like, oh, my old crappy Blackberry who invented this. Let's make Batman an icon. What are you talking about? The Blackberry was an amazing invention. Tetris is still the greatest video game of all time. I'm assuming, Quinty, you're referring to the Tetris movie, which I did not watch because I heard it was kind of bad as a movie. I was referring to the Tetris movie, the Air Jordan movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like Air Jordan's definitely one I'm excited about. Also, Ben Affleck, I actually think is a pretty good director. I just like, why are our options for movies right now the 500th Marvel movie, which I don't care about, or a movie about the creation of Air Jordans? This is terrible. It, it, it amuses me just as an uh, offside that you are, I think, like a decade younger than Scott and me, and yet you are by far the grumpy old person on this podcast today. Marvel movies, get off my lawn! (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, back here at last, not in person, but on the interwebs, with my two other co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello, I've missed you both. It's it's nice to get the, the the band back together. Though 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 it's twice this week, so I'm already tired of you both. Alan reacted as if surprised when I turned to him. I got my kids' latest daycare bug, so I am like I am I got like forty percent brain capacity today. Get excited for the for the takes. Alan is on three second delay. We'll try and edit it out, but we'll still <laughs> Men- mental delay. The internet is totally fine. It's completely yeah, mental fine. delay. It's just all on Alan's side. And of course, we have my other co-host, Quinta Jurassic. Welcome back, Quinta. Hello. Yes, it is good to be back after a extremely busy month of traveling. I'm now I'm 
Well, I was going to say that I'm never going anywhere again, except that I'm going somewhere tomorrow. But after that, I'm never going anywhere again. <laughs> the dream, the dream. Yeah, I really front loaded my travel this summer too. I, I'm like around all the rest of the summer. I'm like, oh no, DC is horrible in the summer. What did I do? Yeah, we, we screwed up big time. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Well, I am excited to have you both back here for what we are calling in honor of Mr. Rosenstein's birthday, which is happening today, the day we are recording, the Alan is one year closer to death edition. Because it's really just a day closer to death, maybe a day plus as we uh, were just discussing. But, you know, it's, we're inching in that direction as, well, as we all do. And eventually all things must end. And on that note, <laughs> let's begin. Let's begin our podcast. Uh, because despite Alan's birthday, that's not the only national news we're going to talk about today. In fact, some other things have been happening in the headlines in the national security space that we are going to hash through with you, the listener. Our first topic for today, fear of flying. President Biden has finally greenlit the transfer of X-16s to Ukraine despite Russia's warnings. Just as the siege at Bakhmut signals a brutal new phase of the conflict, is this the right move or is the risk of escalation too great? Topic two, big sky, closed borders. Social media company TikTok is challenging a new Montana law barring its use in the state on a variety of constitutional grounds, including the First Amendment and foreign affairs preemption, the very mention of which, of which gives me a warm feeling. Uh, are there legal barriers to state efforts to regulate platforms like TikTok or does Montana have the better argument? And topic three, putting the er... In Durham, special counsel John Durham has released the final report of his investigation into the origins of the FBI investigation into possible links between the Trump campaign and Russia. And while the report has some celebrating, it's left many others scratching their heads. What should we make of it? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So there's been a great deal of developments in the war in Ukraine recently. First, as we mentioned, um, President Biden has, at first I thought it was he'd, he'd committed to giving F-16s to Ukraine. It seems like it's more like we've committed to a process that will eventually probably end up in giving F-16s to Ukraine, that the U.S. is uh, supporting an international coalition, this is from Politico reporting, uh, to train Ukrainian pilots on F-16s, which everybody assumes, Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, will eventually end up with actual F-16s being transferred to Ukraine. So is my understanding. Okay. At the same time, uh, Russia has won the battle for the city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine, which has been a long, drawn-out, pretty brutal battle in in the war. Um, it's connected to some shenanigans, which I know you all discussed while I was out, having to do with the interaction between the Wagner Group uh, militia organization and the Russian military. Wagner was sort of at the uh, forefront of Russian efforts there. They have now, according to Yevgeny Prokhozhin, um, the oligarch who runs them, withdrawn from Bakhmut. So who knows what will happen next. Um, and it's also worth flagging this very weird little story that I've become completely obsessed with about a uh, invasion of Russia by a pro-Ukrainian Russia like militia of Russians. This is an invasion of the city of Belgorod, uh, which I believe Eric Toller of Bellingcat um, or another Bellingcat person described as potentially the first invasion uh, across a, a border of sovereign territory that was carried out entirely as a troll. 
So we don't have to talk about that as much, but I do find it funny. So <laughs> to to start off, um, Scott, I wanted to turn to you on the F-16 question, um, both on like what the process looks like from here. Is there like a set process for how Ukraine gets F-16s or is it just kind of like eventually they'll get them? And also why the U.S. changed its mind on this, because this has been something that uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine has been asking for for a long time, and the U.S. has kind of said, like, eh, maybe later. Um, but now, apparently, we've decided to to go for it. So do we know what's behind that? Yeah. It, well, let's start with the first question first about process, because it actually does kind of weigh in on the substantive policy calculus here more than people may realize. F-16s are one of the sacred cows of the U.S. security kind of industrial complex uh, that are a very, very high-value item that we sell to a variety of allies, uh, primarily in Europe, but not exclusively in Europe. Actually, maybe not even primarily in Europe, but to a number of close allies because it's a very powerful weapon. It involves a lot of very sensitive technology and information that can give away information about how we would defend ourselves and we would use our own F-16s and our other aircraft and related software and related armaments, things like that. And even when we sell them to other countries like our European allies, the United States still has a substantial degree of control over them. First, there are usually contractual arrangements that indicate and commit, uh, and sometimes are even in kind of treaty arrangements, although I think more often co- contractual, that set certain limits on how they can be used. You know, maybe they say they're not going to be used for offensive purposes, they'll just be used for defensive purposes. Um, maybe they'll uh, have other restrictions on, you know, ways they, may, certain armaments they may be used, certain frequency with which they may be used, things like that. And particularly among those restraints is a further transfer restriction. Basically, if we give you an F-16, you don't have authorization to transfer it to another third party until the United States signs off on it. That's actually a very common thing for all sorts of sensitive equipment and technology the United States exports or allows foreign governments to contract with U.S. companies to produce if it's not strictly an export. And then on top of that, that comes with a tail. The tail is a variety of things that uh, that country that purchased that F-16, a very expensive investment that's supposed to last decades, assuming it doesn't get shot down, which hopefully they won't, you come have to buy armaments for it. You have to buy parts for it. And you have to get trained on how to use it and train people how to use it. And there's software updates, things like that. That tail is tied back to the United States. The United States can close the pipeline on the tail. And that means all of a sudden you're a very expensive plane within a matter of weeks or months or years, depending on the state it's in and the needs it has, is all of a sudden very quickly going to become a piece of junk. And so it leads to this longer-term security relationship with the United States at the hub of it, and importantly, kind of a web, because, you know, foreign governments that have purchased F-16s, they may be able to collaborate on sharing parts if the United States signs off on it, sharing planes, as is happening here. In this case, the actual F-16s are at this point anticipated to be transferred to Ukraine from European allies with the permission of the United States. That permission is something that the United States was there's a little bit of conflict of how much of it was putting up red light and how much of it was just they weren't sure it was really worth the effort. But regardless, the United States was seen as an obstacle by at least some people to that process up until this past week. And so what it looks like Biden has done essentially is says, look, we're going to agree to a process that is going to train people. That's something that we can, some European allies may have capacity to do, but the United States is in the best position to do. And that sounds like the most direct U.S. involvement. And they say, once you have trained pilots, then we are going to allow European allies to transfer planes to you. Maybe the United States have it down the road. We'll decide, and we'll sell you an F-16 or two or give you an F-16 or two too. But right now, it's suggested it's going to come primarily from Europeans. 
This is a big move, but it's a longer-term move, uh, and the White House has framed it this way. They're saying this is about the long-term security and self-defense of Ukraine. The idea that if Ukraine successfully repulses Russia's invasion at some point, there's still a good chance Russia's hanging out on its border and able, able to threaten it again. And having F-16s, which is a major, major, major upgrade of Ukraine's fairly beleaguered air force, especially after this conflict, is going to dramatically improve Ukraine's ability to defend its borders. As part of that, because it's got this defensive purpose, they have gotten a commitment from Ukraine that these F-16s will not be used outside of Ukrainian borders. They're only going to be used for self-defense, for defending Ukrainian airspace, not for attacking Russia in Russia, for example. And of course, if Ukraine violates that, the United States closes that pipeline on that tail. So there actually are ways to enforce those sorts of commitments. Uh, and so countries tend to abide by them the vast majority of the time. The only trick here, of course, is that well, what is Ukraine is a little bit in flux. And we heard National Security Advisor Sullivan make clear on, I think, cable news shows over the past week, it includes Crimea for purposes of this com agreement with Ukraine. That means Ukraine is going to be able to use these jets once it has them to hit targets in Crimea and other disputed parts of Ukraine. I think we can assume it is the kind of 2012 borders Ukraine that the United States and Ukraine have agreed to keep these fighter jets within. That could make them very valuable assets if this war is still ongoing uh, over particularly the contested eastern parts of Ukraine currently a few months down the road and particularly over Crimea. So that's a really helpful explanation. I, I will still admit to being a bit confused as to why Biden did this at the end of the day, right? What ultimately changed? And, and does that mean that the White House has decided that the fears about Russian escalation, which have always been the main deterrent to providing Ukraine with the latest and greatest, um, they just they're, they're not convinced by that. They don't think Russia will escalate. They think escalation is worth it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that that has been the narrative that's come out of internal reporting from the White House is that they eventually became persuaded the escalation risk isn't what they thought it was in the past. They and particularly this is attributed to Secretary of State Blinken. Uh, kind of have observed and reached the conclusion that Russia doesn't have that many ways it can actually escalate in response because it's so whole hog into this conflict already and it's not going well for it in a variety of ways. Um, and so, you know, it's been a little bit of a frog in a pot of boiling water. The United States and its allies in Europe have slowly increased step by step, gradually, the amount of support they're giving to Ukraine and waiting to see what Russia does in response. And I think there's something fundamentally right about that calculus. Really, there is, it's not that there aren't things that Russia can can do. Uh, there are, but they're all really dramatic and really big. And they are cards that Russia is only going to spend if it really has to. And each of these little ratcheting it up of, of support and assistance has been such a marginal ad, even though collectively they make a pretty significant difference. I think the, the assumption is this is just going to be kind of one more marginal slice up. And of course, the real delivery is still months down the line. So there may be this idea that, well, there are ways to Russia may be able to deter the United States or, you know, maybe that we're going to have be in this kind of, we'll be in a position to pull it back if it looks too risky a few months down the road. But right now this process can kind of move forward. So there's definitely that international calculus and that's been talked about the most. I kind of suspect there is also an internal, frankly, largely U.S. domestic calculus that's going into this as well. Starting this process now and giving these authorizations now starts the ball rolling in a way and gets a lot of momentum towards these transfers that is likely to carry through even if you face opposition from Congress over levels of support to Ukraine, which this isn't really a, a major expense item, I don't think, at least from what I understand of the arrangement right now. So hopefully this wouldn't interfere with that. But the election of a new president who's not supportive of backing Ukraine might. On this time frame, you're going to see these transfers 
get done, I think, by the end of the Biden administration, if President Biden is not reelected, by the end of this term of the Biden administration, in a period where he's going to be in control of these things. And like I said, these are really, really big long-term plus-ups for Ukraine's capacity for self-defense. And so I wouldn't be surprised, even though I, I haven't seen this in the reporting to my knowledge, if that was a part of the calculus as well, is to say, well, we we need to take some steps to really lock in if our ability to provide support gets, gets diminished, meaning the U.S. capability or U.S. interest in willing to do so because of domestic political reasons. This is one ball we can get rolling that's going to make a big difference in the long term, and let's go ahead and start getting it rolling now. I mean, would would you anticipate then, like, are there other steps that would follow from that as well? Because if part of what you're describing is like that there's less concern on the U.S. part that Russia might escalate further just because they're running out of stuff with which to escalate and that there's an incentive to kind of get things rolling, as you say, um, given that you know, time is of the essence. Are there other things that you're going to be looking out for that, you know, the U.S. has maybe been holding out on that Ukraine has been asking for that we might expect to see over the coming months? That's a really good question. And I I will say, I don't think I've been tracking the request of specific technology because I'm not a military hardware guy to know exactly where the marginal of the S-16 was on my radar. The HIMARS was a big one, what, a year ago, nine months ago. That was on this sort of check it bucket list. And um, before that, we had the javelins. And so there is this kind of gradual list of different types of new capabilities and equipment that the Ukrainians have, have frankly asked for kind of from the outset. And the United States is slowly, and its allies are slowly leaking to them and ratcheting it up. And it is, I think it's a little bit of a frog boiling water strategy. If we slowly, marginally kind of increase the level of support and frankly, it goes in parallel with the fact that Ukraine's actually doing well in this conflict, meaning there's less of a risk that this equipment is going to go to waste, less of a risk that's just going to end up in the hands of the Russians who will then reverse engineer it, things like that. That, you know, you're, you'll you'll eventually see additional steps in this regard. The thing that we're seeing right now in addition to this F-16 plan, as far as I can tell, is really big transfers of equipment to the Ukrainians with an eye towards the big siege in Donetsk uh, and efforts to retake held Ukrainian territory, at which Bakhmut is currently the kind of current flashpoint. Um, but that is part of a bigger campaign. We're expecting a Ukrainian counteroffensive in the next few weeks or months that are going to try and dislodge the Russians from Bakhmut, which they currently seem to have taken control of, and from other key points in eastern Ukraine. There's talk about pushing to Crimea. You know, who knows if it's going to get that far. Um, but this is seen as a pivotal moment in the conflict by a lot of people. Again, I. I think in part because of domestic political window for the United States, um, because this is probably the last big offensive that they'll be able to launch, or at least one of the major big offensive they'll be able to launch before the window where you're confident of continuity in U.S. policy is still open. And so there's going to be a very, very big push to, frankly, make whatever military victories you can, can make on the ground now. And then I kind of suspect that's when you're going to start seeing more talk about diplomacy and a diplomatic solution is, you know, get whatever victories you can on the ground. But once we start getting worried about the uh, window closing of political support for Ukraine engaging in this conflict at this level, at this tempo, that's when the incentives are going to change a little bit. And they'll start saying, all right, well, let's maybe we start talking about ceasefire, things like that. So I, I have a, another question for you, Scott. Scott, you're, you're, our, you're our military strategy oracle today. How does that feel? I, that's fine. Ben calls me Admiral Scott for reasons Oof, that are not entirely. Tell me about the Arctic. I don't really know. 
I think that ended poorly for that, Scott. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's my recollection as well. But we'll see what the comments are on this conversation. It was a good ride while, you know, it, it, it was a good while while it lasted. So, you, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times now this sort of drip, drip, drip approach uh, of the United States sending Ukraine arms. And one critique of that approach has been that it's just prolonging this war unnecessarily, right? That if, you know, the, I think mean, the counterfactual here is supposed to be that, you know, if we had just opened the armory and given Ukrainians whatever they wanted, then this war would have been over by now, right? Because the Ukrainians would have either taken, you know, just fully expelled the Russians from their country or whatever ceasefire that will come when both sides are exhausted will have would, would have come sooner because, of course, the Russians would have lost, uh, run out of resources more quickly. I, I, do, you, do you buy that argument? I, I don't have a strong prior on it. I'm curious what you think, though. You know, there are people much better situated to answer that question than than I am. Um, as somebody who really doesn't doesn't the admirals, yes, among other other among other senior military folks. Um, you know, my gut instinct is is that that is that that trade off is understating the complexity of the policy problems the United States was facing and European allies were facing. There was a real escalation risk, particularly earlier in the conflict. Because there were a lot of things Russia could do, and there were a lot of unknowns about Russia's military capabilities, right? Like they have shown to been shown to be a little bit of a paper tiger is going too far, but to, to not be what we thought they were, right? They're very powerful at some things. They got a lot of people and a lot of guns, although a lot less than they did before they invaded Ukraine. But uh, a lot of their high end technological options, the supersonic missile, things like that, have actually proven harder for them to deploy or too expensive for them to deploy and maybe not as effective as they want to be, which may be part of the reason they're hesitant to deploy them with with a lot of frequency. And a lot of these other items that they could have brought to the fore, they they haven't yet. And it does seem like there's genuine reticence on the Russian part to do things like a tactical nuclear weapon, which is a thing that everyone's actually worried about, right, being detonated somewhere in Ukraine. That is still a possibility, right? There is still that risk there. Um, and who knows what's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. But early in the conflict, there's a lot less da- data about where the threshold is for the Russians. And now there is more data to that effect. And so it just makes people more willing. Now, I, I don't think that's it's right to say, oh, Russians will never do this. Uh, this means we can go full bore. I think that's overstating the data points we have. But I do think it means that we can progressively lean forward and lean harder. Um, and again, the fact that the Ukrainians actually are showing that they're very effective at the base level military stuff, like the infantry holding territory, seizing things, makes it a lot easier to give them this greater wave of equipment. Can you be confident it's going to be used effectively? It's going to make a difference. And it's it's worth noting that it's not cost-free. Uh, these things are generally coming, coming from drawdowns of U.S. stock. That means they are diminishing the uh, supplies the United States has in the event the United States gets caught in a major conflict with Russia, with China, in some other corner of the world, right, or with Iran. Um, now, like, there's no reason to think that's clearly on the horizon at the moment. Um, and so maybe that's a risk we can take. And there's things we can do with our defense production chains to maybe make up for some of that gap, although it takes years to replenish some of this equipment. But there are real trade-offs there. And so you know, it's it's just not so easy to say, oh, yeah, every additional tank means they're 5% more likely to have gotten victory. We should have just done it from the outset. That's that's just not the calculus that any of the actors were facing. And it's it's not actually the way I, I think these conflicts uh, intersect with the sorts of assistance we're providing. So before we move on to the next topic, I, I want to get your guys' thoughts on Bakhmut and the battle for Bakhmut, right? So, you know, this is 
at least at the moment, the, I think the central meat grinder of, of the war. I and mean, we talked about this in the context of the Wagner Group uh, last week. But of course, it's brutal for the Ukrainian soldiers. And worst of all, it's brutal for the people of Bakhmut, a city, I think that was approximately 80,000 people, which is now basically empty and utterly in ruins. So you have this epic battle going on. The Russians have claimed to control it, uh, which, you know, despite some Ukrainian claims to the contrary, they seem to. Um, but that control is very tenuous. And a lot of military strategists suspect that Ukraine that Ukraine has a really good shot of retaking it in the counteroffensive. But there's a kind of bigger question hanging over all this, which is why are these two militaries going at it in Bakhmut of all places? I mean, it is in Donetsk, which is obviously uh, sorry, it is in Don- the Donbas, the eastern part of Ukraine, that is obviously the kind of one of the key fulcrums of the war. It is on the front line, so you know, it's not a completely random place. But it doesn't seem to have a lot of strategic significance, which, which suggests that really this has become kind of a, a self-perpetuating symbolic battle, right? Where each side is in continuously committed and has to dig in because to exit the stage and do something more useful with its military would be viewed as a, a lack of resolve. And, you know, I, I've, I've always been a kind of, of two minds of these sorts of credibility-based military decisions, where you know the 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 point is to ostentatiously burn dollar bills, basically, right? As as uh, as quickly uh, uh, and as much as possible, just to show that you're super hardcore. And on the one hand, it, it seems like just like a, a horrifyingly pointless loss of life. On the other hand, you know, a, a lot of war, like a lot of life, is trying to get a read on whether your opponent is uh, you know crazier than you are. And I don't know. I what do you, do you think that this sort of does? justify in a you know strategic sense forget the moral sense these these two nations being so committed to what again is not fundamentally a sort of tactically important part of the Ukrainian front line yeah i mean i will say the new york times actually has a really interesting article about this so the the title of which is literally why bakhmut <laughs> that was published on uh, May 22nd by Thomas Gibbonsneff that basically is saying like, this kind of thing happens all the time in war, right? Like random places just become sort of freighted with symbolic significance. Now, one of the examples is Fallujah. I don't know, Scott, what you what you think of that. Gibbonsneff also points to Gettysburg, an example closer to home, right? Which I think is also fair. Like there's not any enormous like Gettysburg if you've been there it's just in the middle of Pennsylvania there's not a huge amount there right but it became this hugely important moment because it was a sort of significance of the north being able to push the south back from holding on uh, from from moving farther into union territory and so Iwo Jima is another example like, I'm not familiar enough with the the strategy there and the history to to weigh in on that but Stalingrad if we want to take a, a, a another Russian uh, I mean I feel like that had independent significance i mean maybe i don't know i just my, my sense was always because it had the name stalin in it, it like it was really <laughs> symbolic no i'm, I'm not I, kidding I, it was really important i mean that. i don't know i right like that's that's kind of my point here right it's like i don't know if you if you point to these examples maybe some of them do have greater sing- strategic significance like i my impression at least was that stalingrad actually was fairly important but that you know these things just kind of happen and I, the way that i read the article is that part of the sort of absurdity and brutality of war is just that these random places, which I don't want to be dismissive, as you say, um, like have enormous significance for people and people who live there and have made their lives there just become the locus of massive conflict for sort of no obvious reason. 
Yeah, I think that's often right. Although I think it's important to disaggregate a bunch of different ways this happens because a lot of times that happens kind of in the historical memory. Like the Gettysburg example is, is a great one. That is a very random place, but it wasn't a random conflict, right? Like like w- there was strategic significance in that they had to stop, you know, Lee's invasion of the North somewhere and it happened to be at Gettysburg, but there was still a strategic reason. Bakhmut, it's, it's less clear. I mean, you know, the Ukrainians might be able to take the territory all around Bakhmut, leave the Russians in control of the city and really, uh, you know, do use their resources a lot other a lot of other places. Major urban centers, which Bakhmut is or at least was, you know, there are strategic significance about infrastructure, things like that, supply lines, yada, yada, that like can make them actually have military value that different from, you know, holding territory around them. Uh, but it's not clear that's like necessarily the case at this point. But in this case, I do think that there's a strategic significance that comes down to its symbolism, but it's very real in this conflict. Uh, and it's something that is a recurring thing in in war in that, you know, war is a is a continuation of politics by other means, uh, meaning that it intersects with the domestic willingness to continue to pursue war. And that's what Ukraine is pushing against in Bakhmut, I think. Bakhmut has been a point where the Russians have pointed to it as a point of victory, a point of resilience, a point where they're continuing to make progress. It's part of this domestic narrative that people are using to justify the war. And so precisely because Russia has assigned the significance to it domestically um, in its domestic politics, it takes on a new strategic significance, a genuine one for the Ukrainians. Because if the Ukrainians are able to push them out of Bakhmut, um, you not only strip them of that talking point, but you rub in their face, hey, this thing that they've been telling you about how Bakhmut was this point of victory. No, it's it's really not. And I, my suspicion is like that's the calculus here. Um, you know, that's what makes this actually a genuine strategic goal. Um, because if you push the Russians out of Bakhmut, you've pushed them out of the major city in the back half of Donetsk, right? The separatist republic that they came, started this war supposedly to help liberate um, from Ukrainian repression. It's a big, big defeat for them, a very visible one, one that people who are even passingly familiar with the geography of this area will say, oh, well, gosh, they can't even hold this city. That's a problem. Um, and so that's why they become significant, because of their significance in the moral imagination of the political actors that are driving the conflict and facilitating its continuation. Will it matter to Vladimir Putin? No, but I think the calculus is still that he's under domestic pressure. We don't see it. It's hard to tell because it's such a horribly repressive system. But, you know, the fact that the they look like they might be assassinating, you know, deputy ministers of health as uh, an individual who's just a uh, Russian minister who had given a critical interview about the uh, invasion was died because of a sudden illness on a flight back from Cuba this week and what appears to be yet another one of these politically motivated assassination efforts. That's not a sign of strength for this regime that they have such low tolerance for for criticism because that criticism is certainly happening with the thousands of soldiers living through this horrible experience. Um, and so at this point, you know, it, being able to chip away at that morale, at that political, elite political consensus, or make that regime feel more vulnerable, I think it has real strategic value for Ukraine. And so I'm not surprised to see them hit these symbolic targets, and I think they're going to keep hitting them. Well, from the battle in Bakhmut, let us go to the battle in, in Big Butte. Sky. Montana and Big Sky. 
I like Butte, uh, although I don't think that's actually where the court is. <laughs> this is taking place, and that's okay. Um, we saw a very interesting lawsuit get initiated this past week. TikTok, represented by the very white shoe, very uh, well-regarded law firm Covington and Burling, has filed a very novel legal challenge, not TikTok's first novel legal challenge, to a set of restrictions the state of Montana has imposed on TikTok. They've essentially uh, barred TikTok from operating on Montana, threatened to penalize TikTok if it does operate there. Uh, although the exact parameters of how they enforce that, I think, are, are something that's a little less clear to me. Um, justified on a variety of grounds. In part, this is there's some element of this that it's about public health, about the safety of children engaging in social media. Um, talk we saw around similar restrictions or age restrictions around social media generally in Utah that are also uh, becoming an issue here right now. But on top of that, there is the much more TikTok unique problem uh, about its relationship to the Chinese government, the same set of factors that make the federal government very, and particularly members of Congress, very openly concerned that TikTok is not doing enough to protect U.S. citizens' data from foreign government officials, particularly Chinese government officials who might be using it maliciously, not doing enough to insulate their operations, their algorithms from the control of those Chinese officials, basically has is too intertwined with China and the Chinese government to operate safely in the United States for national security reasons. Um, now, of course, the United States government hasn't reached a full conclusion on that. We know that TikTok uh, was threatened with being prohibited uh, by the Trump administration, uh, actually won some lawsuits challenging that behavior um, with similarly ambitious but well-done arguments. At their early stage, the Biden administration then repealed those measures, has installed a number of other sort of considerations, but really has been more in negotiations with TikTok trying to find a way to address these various concerns while on the back end threatening, particularly vocally in the last few months, but we may ultimately get to the point where we do have to bar you and we're still ready to do that um, in ways that will be presumably more legally effective than what the Trump administration did, in part because it will come after this long failed negotiating process that will kind of enter into the the necessity question of of such national security steps. So the Montana action is stepping into the void created by the lack of visible, I guess, legislative activity on the part of the federal government, although there are lots of talk about it in Congress. But the question, among the questions they've raised, separate from the First Amendment element of this, where they say, well, look, we are an important forum for U.S. citizens and other people with First Amendment rights to engage in speech, and therefore the First Amendment protects us, there is this question of foreign preemption about saying, well, doesn't barring us because we have these foreign ties interfere with the policy of the federal government, who's responsible for foreign affairs? has carved out in saying, we're going to keep negotiating with you as part of the CFIUS process. Isn't Montana end running that in a way that's inappropriate? Alan, let me hand it over to you as, as one of the people in our orbit who watches these cases most closely and has written a lot about them in various contexts, particularly the, the First Amendment context. What do you make of, I guess let's start with the First Amendment claims, which by the way, it's worth noting, we expect the Knight Foundation and the ACLU, I think have both said they intend to file briefs in this. Um, as they have done, I think, in litigation and, and around some of these other state bans and prohibitions. So we're going to get more argument on this coming moving forward. What do you make of the First Amendment claims here and these other claims that TikTok's putting forward? 
So let me start uh, on the First Amendment point just by plugging uh, what I thought was a really interesting podcast conversation from a few weeks ago, where uh, Matt Peralta and I spoke with um, Mary Rose Papandreou from UNC Law School and uh, uh, Ramya Krishnan, who is a lawyer at the Knight Foundation, uh, the Knight Institute rather, uh, and I, I suspect will will be on uh, the uh, the lawsuit that Knight will uh, file at any moment. And let me also say that um, I know that whether a lawsuit is good or not does not ultimately depend on whether or not it makes law professors happy. But if that were the grounds, this is like the greatest lawsuit of all time. I am just like cackling with intellectual excitement. Why can't that be the standard? Why Why can't can't it's my birthday. You know what? On my birthday, it is the standard. Um, (laughs) There's just such a a wealth of interesting constitutional law issues. And, and before I get to the first amendment one, I just want to quickly list, list them for sort of completeness's sake. So TikTok raises four constitutional violations that it believes the Montana uh, ban uh, would cause. So the first is the First Amendment, which um, we'll, we'll talk about a lot because I do think that's sort of the major one. Then there is a, as Scott mentioned, a uh, federal preemption based on sort of foreign affairs. Uh, then there's a dormant commerce clause claim, uh, the idea here being that by banning TikTok, you are messing with interstate commerce because, of course, TikTok, like all social media platforms, are seamlessly interstate. Uh, and therefore, what Montana is doing is uh, unconstitutional under the Dormant Commerce Clause. And then finally, there is a bill of attainder objection, uh, which is always fun to see, the arguing that uh, the Montana law um, is a bill of attainder, which is to say it is a legislative punishment of, an ent- of a specific entity. Uh, and those are explicitly unconstitutional. Um, they're, they're actually listed in the Constitution as things that you cannot do, because one of the actually big complaints of the uh, revolutionary generation was the um, quite frequent use of bills of attainder uh, by the uh, by the English government, and they did, they did not like that. I, I think the First Amendment and the foreign preemption issues are the most important. So let me just say like a quick word on why I think the other two are not going to be uh, winners, probably. Um, though each of these issues is actually quite legally rich and interesting. So um, and I'm I'm planning on doing a lot of thinking and writing about this uh, in the future. So this is just kind of my preliminary thoughts on the bill of attainder. Uh, claim. Um, I suspect what Montana will argue, and I think with some plausible justification, is that they're not trying to punish TikTok. What they are trying to do is they are trying to safeguard an important interest that a state has, which is the safety, privacy, et cetera, et cetera, of its citizens. And uh, therefore, this is not a punishment. This is just a regulation of how you have to do it. And because TikTok is uniquely situated because of its relationship uh, or alleged relationship with the Chinese Communist Party, this is not a bill of attainder. I, I, I would guess that that's probably a winning argument for Montana. Of course, it doesn't mean that they're going to win on the other issues, but that's the bill of attainder issue. On the Dormant Commerce Clause issue, this is really interesting because on the one hand, this seems like a really good argument, right? It's it's makes it much harder <laughs> for social media platforms, whether or not they are uh, domestic or foreign or something in between, uh, to operate in the United States if they have to abide by such profound different regulations in each state, right, on a state-by-state basis. The whole point of TikTok is, like, it's not supposed to matter where you are, right? You're just part of TikTok. And the same is true for Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. The problem with this argument, um, however, is twofold. One doctrinal and one just sort of, you know, thinking through where the where where the the hypothetical gets you. The doctrinal problem is that just a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court decided one of I think the most important dormant commerce clause cases of, you know, the decade maybe or the last couple of decades involving uh, California's attempt to regulate uh, standards for pork production. And the argument that the pork producers made is that, look, most pork production happens outside California, but because California is such a large jurisdiction, if you regulate pork welfare standards, you're going to end up like 
having a huge effect on interstate commerce. And the court in a very close decision, kind of 5-4, but it's really fractured, it's, it's not entirely clear what's going on there, said, no, California can do this because you know they have a legitimate interest here. And if the pork producers are unhappy, they can go to Congress and they can get Congress to explicitly preempt what California is doing, right? Just as a reminder, all dormant commerce clause cases are situations in which the Congress has not said anything explicit. And the courts are just saying, even in the absence of explicit congressional preemption, states can't do what they want to do. So that case gives a lot more juice, as it were, to all these state efforts to regulate social media. Doesn't mean that all of them will win, but it definitely kind of gives them sort of wind at their wind at their back. And, and the, the reason why I think, you know, specifically in the social media context, is I, I think that, you know, whatever one thinks about the Montana uh, law, there are many other social media regulations at the state level, you know, whether it's, you know, quote unquote, from the right, like Utah's legislation about minors accessing social media, or quote unquote, from the left, like all these, you know, space-specific privacy statutes. That would be very, very hard to uphold if the court were to take a very expansive view of the Dormant Commerce Clause for social media. So this is another reason why I think courts will um, will dismiss this. Now, this does then lead to the First Amendment and foreign, pre- and foreign affairs preemption. I'll leave the foreign affairs preemption part to Scott because I think he knows more about it than I do. Um, it, it's interesting. I, um, I, I was actually taught foreign affairs preemption in law school by uh, our very own lawfare co-founder, uh, Jack Goldsmith. And I just remember- Wow, um, full circle. Full circle. I just remember the night before the exam going, I, I don't get it. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't get it. It's very complicated. Um, so maybe Scott, maybe you can school me on that. You know, on the First Amendment issue, it's really, I mean, it's really interesting. Again, um, I think there's a, I think the conversation on the podcast with with uh, Mary Rose and, and Ramya is really good. And I recommend folks who are interested in listening to that. You know, if, if I had to kind of handicap this, I would probably bet that TikTok will win on the First Amendment issue just because clearly being able to use a communications platform like TikTok is really important for expressive purposes. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of TikTok, but you know, that, that doesn't matter. People seem to really like it and they're clearly expressing themselves artistically, politically, and all sorts of ways. And the fact that TikTok is being singled out because of the relationship between its owner and a foreign government clearly makes this a kind of content-based restriction, which courts are relatively skeptical of. And finally, um, although I think that the concerns around the relationship between TikTok and the Chinese Communist Party are actually very profound, like I, t- I take them really seriously, and I think the poo-pooing of that among sort of a lot of digital civil liberties groups I have found to be, I mean, to be honest, quite naive. They are nevertheless somewhat speculative, right? There's not like a ton of data showing that the Chinese Communist Party is actively interfering in TikTok in the United States, um, or at least not at the scale that would cause, you know, profound national security concerns, that I would not be surprised if the courts say, look, Montana, you're not making this up, right? Like, this is, you know, this is not a political stunt. Like, we get what you're trying to do. Like, there's legitimate interest here. We just don't think that you have yet created a record, right, that is sufficient for this. And because the First Amendment is really important uh, and, you know, has trade-offs. And in America, part of our constitutional culture is that we eat those trade-offs because we think the First Amendment is really important. We're going to strike down this law, but we're going to strike it down right now on these facts. And we're not going to say things like, oh, it's never important, you know, that a giant social media platform that's used by millions of American children um, is potentially controlled by a foreign adversary government, right? It's just, you haven't showed yet that this justifies a ban. Um, But again, like I, I would... I would benchmark my 
like 70, 70, 75% that TikTok will win on the First Amendment argument, which is like, you know, a lot. But as, as Nate Silver and 538 like to remind us, you know, things, <laughs> things that happen 25% happen all the time. 25% of the time, in fact. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I mean, I think it's worth emphasizing just how batty this law is. I mean, it basically says, like, no TikTok in Montana, which, sure, okay, but, like, what does that mean? How do you implement that? Um, if the idea is that you're going to do some kind of, like, location restriction based on IP address, that's not how IP addresses work within the United States. There's there's a – well, Alan's, Alan's making confused face – or not confused. Alan's making skeptical faces. Skeptical. I'm not confused. I'm just skeptical. You're skeptical. Sorry. No, that was my bad. Um, <laughs> look, I mean, you can, like, approximate, but it is also true that if you're near the border of the state of Montana with other states that – your IP could put you somewhere else. It could put you in Canada, right? So the idea that they're going to ban TikTok in Montana without, you know, clarifying like how that's going to happen is sort of bizarre. And I think speaks to just how silly this whole exercise has become. Because, you know, if you really cared about, you know, protecting the youth from the harms of TikTok, one would hope that you would put a little more energy into figuring out like, what the mechanics would actually be, rather than just kind of waving your hands around um, and saying that, you know, no TikTok in Montana. Alan, tell me why I'm wrong. Uh, so look, you're 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 not wrong, but I I do think you are perhaps overstating the difficulty of this sort of geolocation. So like just to take an example that I think a lot of us have been familiar with, right? Very frequently, um, different streaming platforms, right, whether from movies or music or TV, have geographic restrictions on where you can watch something from, right? So like something might be streaming in Europe and if you're in the United States, you can't watch it or vice versa. Like this was a big problem when Spotify actually first came out because it's I think a Swedish company. And like for like a year, like you couldn't get Spotify in America and that sucked because Spotify is awesome. And it is absolutely true that you know, IP IP addresses are not a perfect proxy for where you are located geographically. And obviously with things like VPNs, virtual private networks, uh, proxy servers, things of that nature, you can uh, route your requests through an IP address that's located somewhere else. And that is, in fact, what people did. Like, if you really, really were committed to watching some show that you could only watch in Europe, you'd pay your $10 for a VPS, and then you'd watch it that way. So yes, if the goal is TikTok is so dangerous that you have to, that we have to get rid of every little, you know, every little bit of it, there's no way of doing that without turning this into a police state. But if you think that like the margin of the harm of TikTok, right? And again, you'd have to prove that. So like, that's a problem, right? Because I'm not sure they've yet proved that. But even that the margin of the harm of TikTok is like, look, if we can get TikTok penetration from 90% to like 
30 or 20% in Montana because it's kind of a pain, especially if you're a kid to like pay for a VPS and all of that. And maybe you could just go to like switch from your TikTok to YouTube shorts or some other sort of equivalent platform. A law I don't think has to be perfect to be rational. So that would be my response to, to like the, you know, Montana is just wishing like for magic powder, magic pixie dust that it can wave on this problem and make it go away. I mean, look, the thing though is that my understanding of the way that IP location works is that distinguishing where an IP is across a border, I guess I, I kind of fudged this by using Canada earlier, because across a national border is a very different proposition than distinguishing where an IP is across a state border because we don't care. Well, we haven't cared until now where you are in the United States. That doesn't have a huge amount of, of significance. Um, and it's also, I mean, look, the, the Montana legislature is just like the level of clownery is is pretty astonishing there if you read the tiktok filing there's uh some quotes in there from legislators who i think like almost literally say we'd like to ban tiktok because we don't like the content that's on this platform right like if you wanted to craft this in a way that raised first amendment questions you could not have done it better than this Right. Like, I would love to know if any lawyers looked at this before they wrote it or if this was just like a YOLO, we can do whatever we want. Law is fake. Just like put it on the books and see what we can we can get away with, because this is mostly a culture war thing. I, I think if you just say China enough times, then oh, the issues go away. God. But yeah, I mean, and look, I, I agree with Alan. Like the the concerns about the the ByteDance ownership are serious. And just before we started recording, the New York Times uh, reported a piece about user data being accessible to ByteDance employees through an internal messaging platform used by TikTok employees. So like, this is serious, but this law is just not the way to to do it. But we should also, uh, setting aside, uh, apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln, the, the First Amendment issues, we should also address the preemption issues. So Scott, I'm curious what your thoughts are. So it's interesting. I actually don't think it's easy to divorce the First Amendment from the preemption issues on a very pragmatic grounds, which is the First Amendment issues inherently requires to assess them the court to exercise policy judgment over the adequacy of certain measures and the degree to which they threaten national security, essentially, although in this case, kind of like Montana state security, but basically national security, right? If they are going this, because it, it strikes me as hard, I don't think the court is going to come out and say, no, under no situation can a state bar, or can a government, I should say, uh, bar a social media platform without violating the First Amendment because of concerns over how that platform might be influencing users or handling users' data. I think clearly there is are certain, perhaps extreme circumstances, unless certain hypothetical circumstances where a government, federal, or state would be able to exercise that authority. And if you accept that, then you say, okay, well, we have to draw the, do this line drawing exercise over well, what is the right trade-off here between what's actually necessary for national security slash state security and what's actually necessary to preserve the First Amendment. And the court's not going to be very excited about trying to say, well, is this adequate or not on First Amendment grounds? Those are the sorts of questions they usually look to the federal government to answer about the adequacy of certain measures and how certain measures impact U.S. foreign affairs. And so my, my strong suspicion is this may actually drive them to look to the foreign affairs preemption question first in a weird way, um, because 
if you can resolve on the basis of that, then you don't have to get into this messy line drawing exercise. And they can maintain their more traditional deferential stature on or, or posture on kind of naturally questions. Yeah, okay, so th- this is super interesting. So can I just, is it is it fair to sort of rephrase what you were saying as here the foreign affairs preemption, like if the court strikes this down on foreign affairs preemption grounds, it's not going to be in the traditional way we think of foreign affairs preemption, which is a state action that interferes with the ability of the federal government to do foreign affairs, but almost as foreign affairs preemption as a like abstention doctrine or like as a, as a, a prudential doctrine of judicial abstention, where in in you know f- for us to even sit in judgment of this would require us to make precisely those foreign affairs judgments that we the courts shouldn't be making. So it's it's like more of like a a separation of powers thing rather than an actual like federalism thing. Maybe 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 I'm like overcomplicating this, but no no no. I mean I my suspicion is I think there's always courts what courts are doing and why they're doing it, and then what courts say they're doing and why they say they're doing it. Will they say that logic out loud? I'm less confident they will. But are they going to be resistant as an institution? Maybe not the district court level. District court judges are diverse and take all sorts of different views. But like as this goes up through appeals, are they going to be resistant to drawing these sorts of lines without the input of the federal government? I don't. I kind of doubt it. And the foreign affairs preemption question provides a way they get to kind of kick the bucket, which they like to do on national security issues, over to at least the federal government. Then maybe somebody can challenge federal government's actions, which TikTok almost certainly will if they do something. And, you know, you 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 can deal with these issues there. But, you know, District Court of Montana gets out of the question. You know, in terms of the actual preemption question here, which is, I think, the substance of the law the court's going to wrestle with, you know, there is a case here, obviously. And it's not quite as easy to say this is just dormant foreign affairs preemption. The federal government has an active policy facilitated by legislation by Congress to handle concerns over foreign ownership of various companies. That is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, the CFIUS process, and then there's a related kind of team telecom authority that does basically the same thing as CFIUS, but under separate FCC authorities, right? Um, This would be under the CFIUS kind of bucket, uh, and we know there's an active discussion going on with them about CFIUS. Interestingly, they also point to IEPA as Congress providing this sort of authority, saying, well, look, Congress gives has given the president broad authority to regulate these sorts of questions as they see fit under IEPA, and in fact, the president, you know, has elected very deliberately and very clearly not to do this. And we know this because he reversed the prior president's position where he did try and do something about TikTok on this, right? So there is very clearly a policy judgment being executed by the executive branch with authority given to it by Congress in this space. I think in that case, there's actually a pretty strong preemption argument. It is It's just so clearly... Montana disagreeing with what the Biden administration has been doing with the CFIUS process, and that's exactly what preemption is supposed to prevent. Um, like kind of the leading preemption case we've seen for the last 20, well, this, at this point, 24 years, I guess would be Garamendi, this uh, California case in 1999 that dealt with a bunch of non-binding, like a bunch of handshake agreements between the federal government uh, and foreign governments about dealing with um, compensation for people who were, uh, you know, victims during World War II, right? Uh, and interfering with a state law provision that was trying to be more generous. And and the federal government won uh, on the basis, or the challenge 
the challenge evoking the federal government's authority, because I actually don't think they were party to the case. One, on the logic that this is clearly the federal government's approach to this. And yeah, they didn't embed in legislation. They didn't use statutes. No, they didn't even enter into treaties or executive agreements. Yeah, they just did these kind of handshake agreements. Or they may have been executive agreements. I, I can't recall off the top of my head now. Um, but regardless, they weren't in a statute. And they said that's still enough. And that case is kind of controversial, and the court's very different now. But I, I don't think this is an area or this is an issue set where it's likely to come out very differently. And when you get the preemption argument, then all this stuff kind of goes up uh, and, and it kind of um, voids the the underlying First Amendment question because that becomes, that question then shifts to federal government action. So that's, I, I kind of think they've got a case here on that particular point. I think it may be more of a problem for Montana. The flip side of this is that there probably are a lot of people in Congress who want Montana to be able to do this. And You could see a universe where, well, maybe Congress adopts a concurrent resolution or a House resolution that says, oh, no, we fully support Montana doing this and muddies the water that way, although I'm not sure that would like really change the calculus. Or maybe Congress gets fully on board and says, oh, we actually enact legislation. We are embedding in our debt ceiling deal or embedding in some other uh, omnibus legislation provision that says CFIUS isn't meant to preempt the sort of action by a state. We want states to be able to do that in addition to the CFIUS prohibition. And then this becomes an open door, and then it becomes very clearly permitted. But that's so far down the road. You know, in the end, a lot of I suspect a lot of the state action is its primary effect is going to be to drive through the legislation at the state level and related litigation an incentive to Congress to actually begin to engage on this issue and the executive branch to engage on this issue. And so we'll see federal action on this before the ultimate constitutional question is actually resolved. Yeah, I mean, this, I want to expand a little bit on a point that I made in another podcast where you can hear us all talk about this or lawfare podcast about the Gonzalez and Tomina decisions in the Supreme Court. My hot take is I think that the increased focus on TikTok might become kind of the new locus of social media litigation rather than things about Section 230 or how US-based platforms are engaging in content moderation. And the reason is that I think that we're going to see a lot more, you know, we or we are seeing a lot more of these state-level exercises at restricting access to platforms, age gating, like in Utah, also something that doesn't really work. And I think TikTok is a it's a very compelling villain. Uh, for the Republican Party, uh, because you can play on fears about China. It's also a compelling villain for Democrats who also like to play on fears about China. And of course, everybody loves to think of the children. And I honestly, I think that uh, Elon Musk's ownership of Twitter, frankly, makes it a lot harder for Republicans to continue attacking the content moderation decisions of US-based platforms because Twitter is what they're all obsessed with. So I would not be surprised if the way that we start addressing these questions about platform governance, privacy, content moderation, et cetera, that that starts being sort of filtered through the lens of these like First Amendment, preemption, Commerce Clause, TikTok, like questions rather than more Section 230 based restrictions on content moderation legislation. Maybe I am totally wrong, but that is my prediction. From one really interesting legal issue to one really uninteresting legal issue, let's talk about the Durham report. Uh, So John Durham, the former U.S. attorney for Connecticut, uh, he was appointed by 
uh, Attorney General Bill Barr in October 2020, a few months before the election, uh, rather one month before the election, uh, to be uh, a special counsel to investigate the FBI's own investigation into potential collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government in 2016 election. So the main finding of this report, which is which is very long, uh, it's several hundred pages, has a very nice uh, note at the front to Merrick Garland thanking him for uh, giving Durham all the independence and resources he wanted. Um, the main finding of this report, as far as I can tell, is that the evidence that the FBI had when it began the investigation uh, justified, quote, a preliminary assessment or at most a preliminary investigation, but not a full investigation. And I think that's the main takeaway from four, you know, for, from, from years and millions of dollars and hundreds of pages of this investigation. So, Quinta, I don't mean to re-traumatize you, <laughs> but I think you probably maybe know the most about the guts of all of this, of maybe anyone in lawfare. So can you just give just like, just like a really quick like overview of this the, the Durham saga and what, if anything, we have learned from this report? <sighs> <laughs> nice. Oh, boy. So, okay. Um, so I want to start off first off by referencing an amazing click call article that I know I've talked about before on the podcast, which is an uh, article, the title of which was, this is from, I believe, 2018, 2017, Legal Bombshell, Mueller Flipped Trump's Confidence Lawyer's Friends Associate Gortman, who could testify against Bleemer, and it's not even lunchtime. Uh, and th- this has led to what um, I I think uh, I remember uh, MSNBC host Chris Hayes tweeted he and his staff call uh, the Gortman Bleemer problem or Bleemering something where a uh, issue related to the Russia investigation ideally becomes so unbelievably tangled and complicated that it is simply impossible to explain to a normal person. Like, if your brain has not been pickled in these juices, you do not know and you do not care. And in the Mueller investigation, this was a source of enormous frustration to me, and I suspect Chris Hayes, because it was really hard to get people to care. Ironically, um, and here I believe I'm drawing on something that um, Adam Serwer of The Atlantic said on on social media at one point, uh, the Durham investigation, they have bleemered themselves. Um, This is, it is too complicated. It is too in the weeds. Nobody cares. Even people who do care, if you try to get them to explain it to you, as I'm about to attempt, they probably won't be able to. So the very, very, very compressed version of the backstory here is, as you say, Alan, um, uh, Bill Barr, when he was attorney general, uh, tasked Durham with investigating the investigator. So investigating the Mueller investigation, looking at it and basically in in my cynical view, attempting to find justification for Trump's belief and Barr's belief that Trump had been unfairly uh, scrutinized by the Bureau who was out to get him. That's kind of the long and the short of it. Um, So the Durham investigation, at this point, it's been running for longer than the Mueller investigation ever did. It has resulted, the two prosecutions that originated with Durham have both resulted in acquittals. And there is one, the one prosecution that people often point to as resulting from Durham's investigation actually came out of findings by DOJ Inspector General Michael Horowitz, who is far more of a hard ass than Durham could ever hope to be. And a lot of the findings in the Durham report that people have like pointed to is like, oh my God, um, look what the Bureau was doing. 
Horowitz already wrote about those when his report about the Russian investigation came out a few years ago, and we covered them extensively on Lawfare. So you can go take a look at that. Um, really, as you say, Alan, the only takeaway that Durham he ha- seems to have here is that he thinks that the Russia investigation should have been launched as a preliminary investigation rather than a full investigation. That might sound confusing to you because you probably haven't spent very much time with uh, what is known as the the Diog, which is the FBI's uh, domestic investigations and operations guide. But essentially, it means that Durham thinks that instead of starting the investigation one way, they should have started it another way that would have given them slightly less authority to sort of use invasive investigative techniques. Like, okay, maybe. The problem with this is that I believe there are no techniques, investigative techniques that were used that we know of that actually resulted in follow-on investigation that were allowed under a full investigation, but that were not allowed under a preliminary investigation. Quinta, but they used the wrong colored paper. They used the wrong colored paper, Quinta. That is essentially what this boils down into, right? It's like, it's super nitpicky. Durham made this objection when Horowitz released his report as well, saying he disagreed with Horowitz because he thought they should have done it using the green paper instead of the blue paper. Um, But it just like, it has no significance, or if it does have significance, the report doesn't explain what that significance is. I read it, frankly, as a way of Durham to set, to wink and nod and say like, this never should have happened without actually saying that because he has a shred of integrity. And you can, we have a great demonstration of how this can lead people to believing that because Mark Thiessen in the Washington Post had a hilarious column basically saying like the Durham report blew the doors off and showed everything wrong with the Russia investigation, basically taking, making explicit what Durham uh, hinted at. And then uh, after he was thoroughly critiqued by the New York Times with Charlie Savage, who's been reporting a lot about this story, uh, the Post had to like cut the column like by a third, basically, because of all the stuff that was wrong and add a like paragraph long correction <laughs> to the top. Yeah. If your correction is longer than eight words, like something terrible. Yeah. Happened. To quote Justice Scalia, I would hide my head in a bag if that happened. <laughs> so uh, the whole thing is just a total boondoggle. It's resulted in nothing. I'm sure Fox News is excited about it, but it's so bleamery at this point that it. I just don't even think it matters anymore. So my main takeaway is just like, why did we waste our time with this? And that is my rant. That's excellent. Well, well, well done. Five out of five. Um, I, I, I had not actually read the Clickhole piece, or I, maybe I'd read it years ago and forgotten about it. So I just looked it up. It's actually interestingly not on Clickhole anymore. They took it down, but it is on the Internet Archive, which we will link to. It is very funny. <laughs> like it is, it is really, it is exceptionally good. I and think I really about it. Gorpen Gleamer. <laughs> you know, it, I spent some time looking over the report, uh, although I will not pretend to have read all three hundred pages of this, and, and it is just one of these products that seems to fit in this weird political moment that we're in where, you know, as you noted, Quinta, this is the result of years of investigations, way more time, maybe not more resources, but still substantial resources than the Mueller investigation around an incident uh, and a set of questions that has, has produced, that produces so little, certainly so little on top of the inspector general report uh, that we got, what, two years ago now, that did note some genuine concerns with Carter Page, Visa, and some other issues that were totally legit and warranted and warranted you know, being brought to the fore. 
and so the margin here is so so different, yet so much is able to be made of it because of this sort of kind of political uh, echo chamber that we have in the broader media and that Durham does kind of not into. You know, I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt because he is very, you know, open and very clear about saying I was not interfered with by the Biden administration at all. I was able to pre- complete this investigation. This is the f- result of our findings on it. But then you got to bear in mind, like, the, the prosecutions he brought that both of which resulted in acquittals were, were very weak. And he really predicated them in, in one of the trials, um, the Sussman trial, I believe it was, you know, he tried to get in what was basically this broad conspiracy argument uh, using, I, I think, as a basis of using kind of unindicted co-conspirators to try and bring in various assertions, alleging that there was a broad pseudo-conspiracy between, um, you know, the DNC and the Clinton campaign and Sussman and a bunch of other people that the district court ultimately said, we're not going to bring in all the speculatory theory and try and use that to bring in all of these kind of rumors around this trial. And that's a really pretty damning thing to say to a federal prosecutor. Um, that's not the way we expect federal prosecutors, even when they're operating as special counsels with a lot of autonomy, um, to be yielding criminal prosecutorial tools, Right or investigatory tools. And it's it's just a more problematic even than the report reads on its face. On our face, it reads very dry. It reads as Durham kind of nodding at things. Um, but in some ways, I think he kind of watered down his investigation uh, towards the end in this report. And it, it doesn't wrestle with, frankly, some of the more problematic aspects that, that came out of it. You know, at least two people's lives were like really negatively impacted by this in ways that at least the justice system didn't find warranted. And that's that's kind of problematic. The other thing I'll say is that, you know, it, it really doesn't seem to wrestle with the dynamics around these sorts of allegations, right? Like you have Durham dealing with a case where you had a foreign government come to the FBI and say, you know, we have reports of from this one individual who's associated with the Trump campaign, maybe a little tangentially, but nonetheless associated with the Trump campaign, saying we think that they have knowledge of Russian Russia and having information on Hillary Clinton's emails, which, of course, substantial emails from the DNC and other people were leaked over the course of uh, this, this campaign that gave some credibility to those claims. The idea that that doesn't predicate some sort of investigation, maybe preliminary, maybe general, you know, depending on what color paper you use, et cetera. Uh, you know, nonetheless, the idea that that doesn't warrant some investigation and might be on a little bit of an expedited basis because that's a pretty major allegation in a process that has a a necessary time frame because it's for an election that's happening five months later, right? Of course, the FBI is going to have to kind of take that, if they're going to take that seriously, and I, I actually kind of think they do have to take that seriously. It's coming, a foreign government wouldn't report that lightly, you know, then they have to move very quickly on that sort of investigation. And on the flip side, Durham is saying, well, they didn't do enough to investigate these sorts of reports after the fact about potential ties between the DNC and this being some whisper campaign and some effort to discredit Trump and and Russia, you know, it's not clear that relates to the predication of the interview. It just is it, that struck me as this total tangent. Had Durham had to go down, that seems very out of scope, and just an effort to kind of same sides uh, or not even same sides in this case, cast more dirt on the DNC and the Clinton campaign in a way that doesn't really relate to the subject of the investigation. I, I don't know. I actually, the more time I spend with this, the more problematic I find it. But I think the best thing that can happen, frankly, is that people forget about it. And I actually think that's after the initial media burst that you see, particularly in right wing circles, that's rapidly what's happening because in the end it's a nothing burger and that's all it's going to deliver. 
Yeah, so I, I want to close up the this by asking Quinta. I want to ask I want to ask Quinta the question version of what you just said. Um, but before I do that, I also want to to um, highlight that uh, Ben Wittes is doing a Durham Durham report reading diary update post on Laffer, which is excellent. Um, so just uh, you know, I, I I don't think his his opinions are particularly different than ours, but it is uh, uh, always excellent to to read Ben's Ben's writing on this sort of stuff. So Quinta, yeah, let me let me close by asking, you know, whether you agree with this last point that that Scott made about what is it that the FBI should have done? And and let me and let me let me ask you in the in this way, right? Which is, look, at the end of the day, right, the Mueller report did not find evidence of active collusion, right? Again, that's a tricky term between the Trump yeah, campaign. Yeah, a collusion, a word that means nothing. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I don't I, I can't relitigate that right now, man. Um they did not did not find an active, you know, collaboration between the Trump campaign. And the Russian government in in 2016, and on the basis of that, a lot of commentators, mostly on the right, but some also on the left, um, or that weird part of the horseshoe where the right and the left kind of loop around, you know, have used this to t- conclude that this was all a quote unquote Russia hoax. Right, that was the real scandal. And look, a lot of that is obviously in bad faith. A lot of that is Monday morning quarterbacking. But like, you know, look, the FBI did conduct an investigation into a presidential candidate and a sitting president and concluded ultimately that the thing that they were worried about initially did not come to pass. And so I think it is worth always being reflective of that, right? Like whatever your political priors are. And so I'm curious, you know, I, I think we sort of heard what, what Scott thinks on this. What do you think? Is, like, is there any, putting aside all the bad faith stuff of which there is just such a big bunch, like, is there anything to that? Like, guys, it's not, it's not great what the outcome of this was. And, you know, this was a big mistake. Uh, No, I don't think there is. Because look, if you look at the track record of the Mueller investigation, like they knocked it out of the park when it comes to criminal prosecutions. The Mueller report, if you just, if you were transported in from 2015 with no knowledge of any of the context around what was happening and just read the Mueller report, I am fairly confident to say that all of our jaws would be on the floor, right? It is really bad. It, it does not show an uh, ongoing collaborative relationship, um, explicit relationship between the Trump campaign and the Russian government, but it does show that the Trump campaign was eager to have Russian help, sought it out repeatedly um, in private and in public, and that Russia did its best to stir trouble and help Trump win the election and a lot of the behavior that and and that Trump acted again and again and again and again to try to prevent investigation of those activities. Like, that is really bad. We should not want that in a democracy, right? And I think that this idea that like, it somehow failed because it didn't show that Trump was on the payroll of Vladimir Putin is absurd. And that when people talk about the collusion hoax, they're just completely missing the plot. That doesn't mean that the FBI did everything right. I think if you want a serious take about what the FBI did wrong, you can take a look at the Horowitz report, which I I think is overly harsh in some measures. But it is certainly true that it turns out that the FBI's procedures for Title I FISA applications appear to have been seriously flawed and need an overhaul. So I won't defend them on that. But the idea that they never should have investigated it and that the investigation didn't come up with anything is just not true. Well, folks, for Alan's birthday, we have given him an extremely extra long episode because we are <laughs> hitting record. This was, a, this was a good one, guys. It was a good one. It's just it's good, to, good to be chatting with you guys again, but I'm calling it. All right. We're out of time to talk. 
But this still wouldn't be Raph's Greed if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us for an object lesson? So as you all may have heard, it's my birthday. And my wife... You cry if you want to. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I will not be crying because my birthday gift from my wife is amazing. It is a brownie edge pan. So those of you who have eaten brownies will know, and I say this to a metaphysical certainty, that brownies should be A, fudgy, and B, they should be corner pieces because it's those corner, fudgy, chewy bits that are the best. But of course, in a tray of brownies, there's only a limited amount of corner edge piece. So some genius, some genius invented a brownie pan, and I know it's hard to describe, but we'll, we'll link it, obviously, where the, like, the edges kind of run down into the pan such that every brownie piece is a corner piece. And my wife got me that for my birthday. And I think brownies are literally baking as we speak. So I'm going to hang up and go eat a corner piece brownie. Happy birthday to me. That's pretty good. I have to give that. I, that that's a good unitasker for the kitchen. Yeah. I'll concede yeah. that one. I, I, don't, I, I will report back in a couple of months whether it's reached like Spetzel maker levels of importance in my kitchen. But yeah, I'm really excited. <laughs> Excellent. Quinto, what do you have for us this week? All right, folks. So I believe we have discussed on this podcast before, Scott, how uh, everyone's favorite hashtag resistance uh, super lawyer, Neil Katyal, enjoys to go to concerts in the D.C. area. Mm -hmm. You saw the National at the Anthem last night. (laughs) And so did I. It was a great show. I enjoyed it. Uh, But yes, the shout out to Neil Katyal was truly one of the weirdest things I have ever experienced at a concert venue. So what happened was that they're playing their little songs. And at some point, uh, Matt Berninger, the front man, said, we'd like to give a shout out to our friend Neil Katyal. And that this is for Neil Katyal and the arguments that he's been making at the Supreme Court. And then launched into a song titled, I swear to God, this isn't helping. (laughs) Now, my reaction was... That's an unbelievably nasty burn. <laughs> uh, it seems from Twitter like Neil Couchel is like buds with the National. He appears to have been backstage as far as I can tell at the show. I did not see him. I was with the plebeians. But uh, so I think that that was meant as like good natured ribbing instead of an unbelievably vicious burn. But it was hilarious. And I spent the next like two hours after getting home from the show trying to figure out what the hell was going on. I love that. That's phenomenal. Uh, I I will say I'm going to the Flaming Lips concert tomorrow. Neil, I hope oh, you're there. I really want to see the former man, deputy lucky. hanging out with the Flaming Lips on stage. This is this this will be the dream scenario. That's a good band. Maybe man. not. Maybe not his jam. Uh, but I'm very excited about it. What a great great story from the DC concert scene, which this is becoming one of our favorite sub podcasts. It was <laughs> really like, can I just not get away from work for like one hour? Like, come on, yeah, man! I know not you, you live. No. In, you chose to live in Washington DC. I come made a Min- terrible mistake. Come, come to Minnesota. This never happens here. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a, it's not a problem I have to deal with. <laughs> well, for my object lesson. I am actually gonna gonna echo my object lesson from last week because I briefly mentioned this book, and after having a conversation about it with the author for the Lawfare Podcast last week, I thought it was worth bumping up and giving its own endorsement. Um, I read amid the many many books that I was able to cram down during my week off. 
uh, week before last, I read a phenomenal new now out was not out last week, but is now out book by uh, a friend of mine, Patrick Vile, who is a scholar at Yale Law School, a phenomenal French scholar, uh, but has been in Yale for uh, 10 years or so now. And it's a phenomenally interesting book. Basically, randomly while digging through the Yale archives eight years ago or something like that, uh, he stumbled upon a copy of a book written by William Bullitt, a name that anybody who's a U.S. diplomacy historian aficionado will be familiar with, a very prominent kind of off-and-on U.S. diplomat slash political agent between World War One and World War II leading up in kind of the Nixon years, one of these guys who was always, always almost Secretary of State but never quite made it, a fascinating trajectory from radical to rabid anti-communist. He, in the 1930s, was distraught over the collapse of the Treaty of Versailles, particularly President Woodrow Wilson's role in it, where Wilson essentially deep-sixed the treaty by refusing to compromise on some pretty basic reservations by the uh, Republicans in the Senate. And was so distraught about this, he went and pursued counseling from none other than the father of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. And then over the course of sitting down and and discussing with Freud, because he was writing a play about Wilson, because he's a playwright and a journalist and kind of one of these very classic turn of the century, uh, you know, every man uh, or every, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Jack of all trades. They decided to write a book about Wilson, psychoanalyzing him uh, and trying to figure out why he proved so ineffective during the Treaty of Versailles. They wrote a book about it, signed every chapter, um, and then it sat and wasn't published for 30 years because Bullitt decided he wanted to go back into the Roosevelt administration, and so he did and became ambassador to France and ambassador to Russia, had political and policy aspirations for the next several decades. It wasn't published until the 1960s, and even at that point was heavily, heavily redacted because of opposition from Freud's surviving relatives, um, because of Bullitt's own reservations about, frankly, including stuff that's fairly critical or could be read as critical of Christianity, which he at that point had come to concluded was a key part of the strength of Western ideology and its battle against communism. And so the complete version of this, the actual Freud-inspired version uh, and input version was lost, people thought, until Patrick found it. So Patrick wrote a phenomenal book, uh, The Madman in the White House, that is a biography of Bullet, to some extent a biography of Freud and how their lives intersect, and then a biography of this biography that they wrote of Wilson, which digs deep into U.S. diplomatic history. That's fascinating. This weird moment between World War I and World War II where things were just, you know, there's much more radical politics than people appreciate. Phenomenal political history, international relations, lots of weird sex stuff because in the end it's a Freud book and you can't get away without that. This guy had a weird sex life that we know way too much about. It's a phenomenally interesting read that I cannot recommend enough. So rush out there, get The Madman in the White House, um, it's not actually as much about Wilson as you think it is. It's much more about this book and Bullet, but it's a phenomenally interesting read. Can't recommend it enough. And with that, we are at the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes for written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on our other phenomenal podcast series. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at RETL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. And sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Her music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.